So I'm uh, Pastor Michael, and I want to wish everyone a happy new year. 2020 is now officially in the record books. And uh, it's been, let me adjust even more then, because there you go. I think I could safely say that it's been a, a hard and difficult year for all of us. It's been a year of losses, both big and small. But through it all, the God of all comfort has been with us, has been with our church. And so we can look forward to 2021, not simply because we expect the circumstances to get better. Who knows? Nobody knows the future. It may be even worse. But our God is before us. He is behind us. He surrounds us. And so it will be a good year. For the new year, we're going to start a sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. What are the spiritual disciplines? They are a set of ancient, time-tested Christian practices that structure and govern the Christian life. They are things like studying scripture, intensive prayer, keeping Sabbath, gathering together as a church community. And I want to emphasize here that these are not advanced, you know, esoteric spiritual practices that you will only see in the most remote uh, monasteries. But these are ordinary, basic things that all Christians have done throughout the centuries, but increasingly in the modern church, they have fallen by the wayside. I have observed that they have become neglected and discarded, and I am convinced that we are spiritually impoverished by this. We are spiritually malnourished because of this. And so for the next 10 sermons or so, we are going to do a long meditation on the spiritual disciplines. And we're not just going to talk about it. We're going to put them into practice. And the community group discussions are going to center around them. And today, my goal is very modest. I'm just going to introduce the idea of the spiritual disciplines. And I want to persuade you. I I want to win you over that you need this. We need this. So here's the, uh, my three points. Here's the outline. Number one, before we look at the remedy, we have to look at what ails us. And so we're going to look at the sickness of the modern life. Secondly, we're going to, I'm going to make a case for the spiritual disciplines. And then finally, we're going to conclude with, I'm going to, uh, we're going to see that the Christian life is a race. So let's begin. Number one, let's look at the modern life. So for about a year or so, uh, Christina, my wife, has been hounding me to read this book. And she loves this book so much that she has read this, she has read it three times, twice for herself and then once with her discipleship group. And about, you know, six months or so, I said, okay, okay. And so I read the book. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. 
And as I was reading it at first, I found the style a little bit off-putting. Um, there are paragraphs, frequent paragraphs, where it's just a single sentence long. Um, and it has this kind of breezy blog writing style. But, you know, I, I, I'm reading it, I, you know, I'm giving it a chance. And then somewhere around the fourth or fifth chapter, it really got me. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I've been telling people that it is the most challenging, the most impactful book I have read in a long time. And I've been encouraging everyone, you know, to read this book. And, you know, full disclosure, this sermon is basically a book report on this book. And so the book begins by describing the spiritual condition of being immersed in the modern world. And we all feel it. This ever-present but vague sense of dread and anxiety that overshadows us. So that even though we live in the wealthiest country that has ever existed in the history of humankind, there is this deep inner emptiness and poverty of spirit that pervades our culture. And so what is going on? And John Mark Comer, he begins his analysis by looking at, starting by looking at our digital lives. So that because of our smartphones, we are constantly connected to the internet in an uninterrupted way. And that brings all these uh, distractions. And as I was reading these chapters, you know, my attitude was a little bit like, you know, yeah, yeah, I've heard this all before. If you've seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma, if you've you know, read Nick Carr's book, uh, The Shallows, nobody reads anymore. So if you've read book summaries or saw headlines about this book or, you know, every year there are literally dozens of articles about digital addiction. But there is something profound going on. And I feel like we're all living inside this giant social experiment You know, we're all like these little guinea pigs trapped inside the hamster wheel set up by these tech companies where they're creating these devices that optimize for addiction and it's changing us. It's shortened our attention spans. It's made us unable to endure boredom. And I don't think we fully appreciate the staggering impact this is having on our on our minds. I remember a time when I used to be able to read a book for three hours straight. You know, when I was in high school, when I was in college, and all through my 20s, when I found a book that I was really into, I could just tank into it. I could disappear into that book all afternoon. But now, because I am so completely addicted to my smartphone, (laughs) this device, and This is uncomfortable for me to admit to myself. And, you know, I resisted it for a long time. You know, the smartphone, uh, the iPhone came out in 2007. And for a long time, I looked down on it. I I was a very much of a late adapter. And I only got a smartphone maybe five or six years ago. And, And I resisted, you know, like Christina would say to me, why are you checking your smartphone during dinner, I mean, this is not a problem for me. But I find myself 
where I cannot be in a room without my phone. And now when I read a book, I cannot go 10 minutes without this intense impulse to touch and pick up my phone. And I still love to read. Reading is my all-time favorite activity. But now reading even for an hour is taxing to me because I'm constantly checking my phone and I'm constantly being pulled away to other things on the internet. And I know I'm not the only one struggling with this. I am alarmed (laughs) at how frazzled and how intolerant of boredom I've become. When I'm in a store, you know, and uh, it's time to check out, I will look for the shortest line, you know, and, you know, suppose the line has three people in it. But while I'm standing in line, my eyes are constantly scanning to see if there's a shorter line. And if there's a line with just two people, I will switch lines. Why am I in such a rush? And then while I'm standing there, I, I don't just, you know, enjoy the time and relax and just be alone with my thoughts. I immediately pull out my phone. There's no reason for it, right? I just do it out of compulsion and I'm just, I'm getting my fix. I'm, I'm reading snippets of articles. I'm checking my messages. I'm scrolling through social media. What is going on? Listen, the problem is not just these electronic devices. Please don't misunderstand. This is not a sermon. This is not a screed against technology, but the grip of technology, I think, is symptomatic. It, it's, it's indicating a deeper problem. We live in a culture that idolizes these twin gods of accomplishment and consumption. And our whole society is structured around this, around productivity and efficiency so that we can make money. And then we can take that money and we can buy things. And then after we buy those things, we have to immediately get back to work. We can barely pause even to enjoy what we buy. And so we are on this merry-go-round of consumerism and workaholism. And so we're constantly rushing. We're constantly hurrying to accomplish and to multitask. But it's never enough. We're always behind. We're always playing catch-up. There's always this undercurrent of anxiety that never seems to go away. And so we are exhausted. And we lag through our days propped up on coffee and stimulants. And then we go home completely spent And then we numb ourselves with entertainment. Did you know, by the way, that we have more leisure time than any previous generation in history? I know it doesn't seem like that, but if you read, you know, if you listen to what economists are telling us, what social historians tell us, this is undeniable. We have more leisure time than we did back in the 1980s, which is when we had more leisure time than we did in the 1950s which is when we had way more leisure time than we did in the previous centuries during the industrial agrarian economy. But it doesn't feel like we have a lot of leisure time because the problem is we're filling our minds with flickering images and digital escape so that it's not truly restful. 
so that we're binge watching streaming shows late at night and then we wake up the next morning bleary eyed. The day hasn't even begun yet and we are already tired. There's a spiritual cost to all of this. And so John Mark Comer's argument is that the noise, the noise of this modern world has made us deaf to the voice of God so that our lives are so crowded by hurry and accumulation that we have no room for God. And so we have lost our connection to him and we have lost our connection to each other and we have lost our connection even to our own souls. This is why so many of us are emotionally unhealthy. This is why we're constantly irritable. The smallest thing sets us off. We can barely contain the explosive rage that is just simmering underneath the surface. We are stressed out. We are bone deep tired. We are unhappy and unsatisfied. And I think John Mark Comer in this book, he absolutely nails our culture. And I believe he is a prophet for our modern day because his argument is that the modern world wars against our souls. And so what is the answer? The answer is that we need a radical reorientation of our lives. We have become so used to spiritual mediocrity that we don't realize there's another kind of life available to us, a life that is rich in God, a life full of the Spirit, full of the of the fruits of the Spirit, peace, joy, love. And the key to spiritual and emotional health is that we must abide in Christ. That's what the spiritual disciplines are. They connect us to the vine. But in order to connect, in order to abide in the vine, it is going to cost us. It's not enough simply to adopt a few life hacks to increase our efficiency or to boost our mood because the problem is too deep and it's going to require radical measures. This is why the book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry because John Mark Comer is saying we must ruthlessly eliminate and reduce so many things in our lives. And you know, many of these things are good things. They're not bad things in and of themselves, but they are crowding out the things of God. And so we must say no to so many things in our life in order to say yes to God. Because your time is limited. And it's going to take time. You know, every healthy love relationship in your life takes time. There's that old parenting adage to a small child, love is spelled T-I-M-E. And that is true with all relationships. And so if you want a living, vital relationship with God, you are going to have to carve out time to be with Him. Full stop. There's no other way. Or let me put it this way. We are all being discipled in one way or another. 
Did you know that the average American spends about 80 hours a week consuming media? 80 hours a week. That's most of your waking hours. Most of your waking hours, we are filling our minds with the rage and the violence and the lust and the greed of this world. And compared to that, how can a one-hour Sunday service possibly compete against that? You see, spiritual formation is happening whether you like it or not. Because human beings are dynamic. We're not static. We're all on the journey of becoming. And so the question isn't, are you being formed? Because trust me, you are. The question is, who are you being formed into? The question is, are you being conscious of this? And is this an intentional decision on your part? Or are you simply being pulled along by the streams of our culture? And so that leads me to the second point, which is, let me make a case for the spiritual disciplines. And here, let me direct you to your bulletins. We're going to read an assortment of passages. I'm going to read to you starting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Matthew, by the way, is the writer of that gospel, sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Matthew arose and followed him. Ephesians 4.13, here Paul is talking about the mission of the church. And in, and in that passage, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7-8 through 8, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then finally, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. These are the words of God. So I want to start with this metaphor that Paul gives us in Ephesians 4. He says we are to grow into mature manhood, into the full stature of Christ, so that we are no longer children. So Paul here, he gives us this imagery of human development, like a child growing up into full adulthood. Because when you become a Christian, you start out like an infant. You have spiritual life, just like an infant is alive, but that life is fragile and undeveloped. And it would be tragic. There would be something wrong if that infant stayed an infant indefinitely, right? If you met a 20-year-old infant, you would be alarmed. Something terrible has happened. And so you must grow and mature. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's growing up into the full stature of Jesus Christ to grow into his image, into Christ's likeness, so that you can be 
like Jesus, who lived the most perfect, the most beautiful human life that has ever been lived. The theological word for this is sanctification. A lot of contemporary Christian writers are now using the, uh, the expression spiritual formation, which I really like, because we are being formed into a new person. We are being transformed in our life and in our heart. Paul says in Romans 12 to, listen to this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. You know the word transform in the Greek, in the Bible, is the word metamorpho. Metamorpho is where we get the English word metamorphosis. Like a little caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. That's metamorphosis. That is the level of change we're talking about. We are talking about radical transformation. So that Paul can say in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not just new behaviors, but new affections. A new heart, a new mind, a new relationship to sex and to money. This transformative power that comes into your life, that renews marriages, that frees you from addictions. That's what the Christian life is about, nothing less. So how does that happen? What is the mechanism for this remarkable spiritual transformation? We need to go back to first principles. When you look at the Gospels, when Jesus called his disciples, what did he say? Did he say to them, you know, I just want you to believe a set of doctrines and then you'll be saved. You know, because what I'm really doing is I'm doing an intellectual thing. I I just want to put a few ideas into your head. No, instead he says, follow me. And when Jesus says this, it's not just a metaphor. He literally means come and follow me around, right? Come and live with me. Because the word disciple in the Bible is the Greek word methetes, which can be translated as student or learner. But I think the better contemporary translation would be apprentice. How does apprenticeship work? You know, especially before the modern world, if you're an apprentice, you would go and you would live with your master. And then you would watch and observe his life. And you would observe everything, you know, the way he eats breakfast, the way he talks, the way he conducts himself and and his relationship with people in his life. And your goal as an apprentice is to imitate his life, to become like your master in every way. And so, and so being a Christ follower, being a disciple of Jesus, which is what we're all called to be, is about imitating the master. Is about adopting the life of Jesus. And when you look at Jesus' life, what do you see? You see that he was constant in prayer. He was immersed in scripture. He surrounded himself with this tight-knit discipleship community. He poured himself out in service to other. These are the spiritual disciplines. 
the spiritual disciplines is a way of inhabiting the life that Jesus taught us, not just believing a set of beliefs, not just you know going to church once a week and living a you know a relatively decent law-abiding life. The Christian life is so much more rigorous and thoroughgoing than that. Now I know for a lot of people, spiritual disciplines has this negative connotation. So that when people hear the word discipline, they think strictness, rules to follow, restraints. And people say, well, you know, shouldn't the Christian life be more spontaneous and free-flowing and you know, shouldn't we be authentic? We don't want to be legalistic about being a Christian. And my response, and I'm going to say, you know, something really strong because this is a common view. That view is naive. It is deeply naive about how change, any change happens. After I read The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, the next book I happened to read was a book on habits. Uh, this book is has been on the New York Times bestseller list. It, it's got all these rave reviews. And so I put it on my queue of books to read. And it's called The Atomic, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it was actually my intention to sort of skim through the book. I didn't think much of much would come of it but I got totally pulled into it. And on the surface, it seems like your typical self-help book. You know, a lot of his examples have to do with weight loss and money management. But I had just read John Mark Comer talking about the spiritual disciplines. And another word for spiritual disciplines is, by the way, Christian habits. And when you read James Clear in that light, it is one of the most profound books I have ever read. And so James Clear, in his book, he says that, you know, human beings, you and I, you know, we think we live on the level of our goals. You know, we think we live at the level of these principles that we hold in our minds, that we think of for ourselves. But he says, actually, we live on the level of our daily habits. It is the things that we repeat every day that ultimately define us. So that in the end, you are not your beliefs. You are not the aspirations that you hold for yourself. You are your habits. I think this is a profound insight. And James Clear, he goes on to tell the story of this um, psychology experiment where researchers wanted to understand the science of human behavior. And they wanted to understand specifically how desire and motivation influences the way we actually live. And so they recruited, you know, hundreds of participants and they wanted to focus on this issue of physical exercise. And so they, they divided the group into, they divided all the participants into three random groups. The first group is the control group. They were asked to do nothing other than keep a journal and record how how frequently, how much they exercise. The second group, called the motivation group, was asked to keep a log 
And on top of that, they were asked to watch once a week a motivational video. And these different motivational videos would extol the benefits of exercise, you know, how it improves cardiovascular health, it leads to weight loss, it boosts your mood, and so forth. And then the third group asked, was asked to keep a log, was also asked to watch those same motivational videos. But in addition to that, they were asked to sit down and write, that, write out a detailed plan for an exercise regimen in which they would implement basically these habits of exercise. At the end of the experiment, the researchers expected that these three groups would basically have this neat progression of exercise. You know, the control group would exercise the least, the motivation group would exercise more than the control group, and then the third group would exercise even more. But what they discovered is that there is no measurable difference between the first two groups. So that the motivation group exercised just as much, or maybe we could say just as little, as the control group. And it was only the third group who experienced a change in their behavior. They more than doubled the amount of exercise as the first two groups. And so what the researchers concluded, listen to this, is that motivational talks have almost no impact on actual behavior. But it is only when you formulate a concrete plan of action that your life actually changes. When I read that, I just about fell out of my seat. And it hit me like a thunderbolt. Because listen, our church, correct me if I'm wrong, indelible grace church's whole paradigm of spiritual transformation is basically group number two. We ask you to come maybe once a week and to listen to a motivational talk. We're asking you to listen to a 30-minute spiritual TED talk and then somehow we expect life transformation. But it doesn't work because that's not how human beings actually change. I want you to know all our beliefs come to nothing if they are not tethered to spiritual disciplines. Because those disciplines, these rhythms of the Christian life is what ultimately changes us. These ancient practices is what actually connects us to life in God. Let me say one more thing before we move on to the final point. And, you know, there's just so many good insights in the book. I wish I could share uh, more of them. I, I recommend this book highly, especially as you think about the spiritual disciplines. But let me share this one more insight from James Clear. He says that habits are actually not these dramatic decisions that you make, but they're actually these little micro decisions. And they work incrementally. And they change you 1% at a time. And this is where he gets the title of his book, Atomic Habits, right? Because the impact of any one habit in any one instance is microscopic. It's actually imperceptible. But every day as you're doing them, you're making small improvements in your life. And then over time, 
they have a compounding effect. And if you're consistent in them, if you persevere in them, over a three to five year period, you will see enormous changes in your life. But in the short run, in the, in the days and in the weeks, even in the months after you start a new habit, it will seem like nothing is happening. And James Clear, he calls that period the valley of disappointment. He says that, you know, especially for modern people, we expect immediate results. We expect this linear progress where we can observe results. And so when we, see, we, when we don't see those results, we get discouraged and we give up after a few weeks. This is why the Bible talks about perseverance in the Christian life so much. Consider, for example, Galatians 6, 9. Listen to this. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Or consider Hebrews 12, 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that leads me to my final point. The Christian life is a race. I want you to know that the spiritual disciplines are not an end in themselves. They are, they are the means. The means to enjoying the presence of Jesus and becoming like Him. They are not there so that you can feel proud about yourself. Today I read my Bible. Today I prayed for 30 minutes. That's good. But they're not an end, they're a means. And they're to bring us into the presence of Jesus. And in His presence, in that sustained presence, we will become like Him. We will share in His life. And I want you to know that that life takes practice. Because it's a whole new way of living that is completely at odds with our culture. And you can't do it alone. You have to do it with the church. You need a community of Christian friends to surround you and to support you and cheer you on. And it's not going to happen overnight because you're not going to be good at it at first. And so let me close with this final encouragement. I want to look at Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy. We've read this in the bulletin. Let me read it to you again. Paul writes, Train yourself. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul says that godliness is a matter of training. And the word train there is the Greek word gymnazo. It's where we get the English word gymnasium, gymnastics, Gymnazo means to exercise, it means training. It's actually a very sweaty word that involves exertion and hard work. If you read Paul's letters, it's really obvious that Paul was a sports fan. He uses sports metaphors all the time. He talks about boxing, wrestling, athletic training. But by far, his favorite metaphor for the Christian life is that it is a race. 
And so I want to close with this final illustration. I want you to think about running a marathon. And suppose that you are completely out of shape. You have heart, you have a heart condition, you have blood pressure issues, you have just failed your annual physical exam, you are completely unfit. How are you going to run a marathon? Do you just wake up the next morning and full-on sprint the 26 miles? No, that would kill you, right? You, You wouldn't make it to one mile. And if you pace yourself, you know, maybe, maybe you might make it to four or five miles and then you would collapse, clutching your chest, wheezing and gasping for breath. An ambulance would have to be called and you'd probably get in the papers. And so it's really easy to think, well, it can't be done. But that's not true. Virtually everyone in this park and virtually everyone at home can run a marathon. It just can't be done right now in your current condition. But it can be done. So how do you run a marathon? You have to start a training regimen. So tomorrow morning, you get up and you run one mile. Maybe you can't even run that mile, so you briskly walk one mile. And then the next morning, you do it again. And then you keep going. And then maybe after a week, probably two weeks, and of course you give yourself days off, you add the second mile. If you've ever trained for long distance running, you know that it's really simple. It's not rocket science. You just incrementally add one mile to your long run. And then eventually you're running five miles, six miles, and then seven miles, eight miles. Your tempo is improving. Your stamina is increasing. And then over a very long period of time, you know, we're talking one year, two years go by, you can now run 20 miles. Your heart is strong. Your lung capacity has expanded. Your muscles are toned and fit. Because what has happened is that through rigorous training applied consistently over a long period of time, you have become the kind of person for whom running 26 miles is not only possible, it is well within your capacity. It is hard work, but you can do it. The problem is that almost no one approaches their Christian life like this. So that when we hear Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when he says, do not lust, do not worry about your life. And then you get inspired by a sermon and you say, I'm going to live my life like that. I'm going to try so hard. And then the next morning you get an email from your boss, you get a message from one of your coworkers and you're just racked with anxiety. And then we get discouraged. And then we start to think, well, that life must not be possible. And I think so many of us, we downgrade Jesus' teaching to protect ourselves. And we say, well, it just can't be done. No, it can. It just can't be done 
yet because you're spiritually out of shape. You are unhealthy. You've been eating the junk food of our culture. It can be done. But it's going to take not one or two weeks. It is going to take a lifetime of training in community by the power of the Spirit. That is what the spiritual disciplines are. They are the training regimen of the Christian life. Doesn't that excite you? Don't you want to do this? I want you to know at the end of the race, there's a prize. And the prize is Christ. It's all the fullness of joy and life in Him. We have no idea. We have no idea what awaits us. We are like little children playing in the mud because we don't realize a holiday at the sea has been offered to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you saved us, not just from the guilt of sin, but from its power. And so we want to live this life that is full of the Spirit, full of the fruits, fruit of the Spirit, a life that is grounded, a life that is present to God and to others. Give us not only the resolve and the desire to do this, but the means. Give us the Spirit. Give us a community to surround us. Help us to live out the Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.